0: This is AI and L&D Insights, the conversation where all things learning, development and performance support meet cutting-edge artificial intelligence. I'm Marcus and in each conversation we aim to cut through the buzz, explore innovations, discuss their potential and unmask limitations. Whether you're navigating the vast AI landscape or spearheading digital learning transformation, you're in the right place. Let's dive in. So, welcome everyone to this episode of the AI and L&D Insights podcast. In this episode, we've got Chris Pedder here with us. He's Chief Data Scientist over at Abrism, where he's developing cutting-edge AI technology for adaptive learning, and he also likes to talk about all things startups, innovation, and technology. This is going to be a great conversation I've been looking forward to, and
1: welcome to the episode, Chris. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Marcus. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course, this AI hype with large language models has been around us for almost a year now, and we've been able to touch these things and play with them. We've been able to experiment writing poems and getting funny answers and also trying to break the system as humans always do, rather than the AI just being in the background with the series and the Alexas. My first question would be, from your vantage point, what is actually so great
1: about them? It's a great question. I would say the first thing that occurs to me about large language models in general is they're just very available. So they're the first thing, like you alluded to in your question, that has broken through from the machine learning world into people's everyday lives. Siri and Alexa, like you say, are hidden behind a veil, whereas you can really feel like you're typing to these large language models and they're typing back to you. So the user experiences very different from any previous generation of machine learning and AI. And that makes it really, really, exciting. It's amazing to see people using them for so many different things. And very convincing at
0: times. I still find myself sometimes when I'm prompting the system that I say, please, can you now
1: edit it like this? Do you, do you have similar experiences? Yeah, I always find myself saying, please and thank you to GPT. And then telling myself, no, re- remember, don't anthropomorphize. It's, it's just a computer program. So, and there's something else as well, which is kind of fascinating. So I saw a wonderfully sarcastic meme the other day, which was all about, someone had written, there's a world now where people are doing the robotic work of labeling data for machine learning models, which write poetry. This is not the future that I was hoping for, (laughs) which I can sort of see the, yeah, I see that. (laughs) That's a really good example. Absolutely. And
0: so then let's, let's look at the other side of them. People have also trying things out, managed to break it, have managed to find publications and research papers that then turn out not to exist and those sort of things. So let's get
1: a bit of a view from you on why they're maybe not so great. Yes, definitely. So the, the first warning of this was Meta's big project, which I think was called Galactica, which the idea was that it would be a search engine for scientific research. The problem is, of course, that these things are still just trained to do next word prediction. So ultimately, when you type in a prompt to a machine learning model like GPT, then all it's doing is trying to come up with a string of plausible sounding texts that follows the same sort of pattern that it's seen in probably billions of different examples on the internet already. So it's really just a regression to some plausible sounding text and without really any guardrails. So ultimately, these things can hallucinate something. I dislike actually i am using the term hallucination because it's so common, but I really dislike it. I would be inclined to call it something less polite, which I think I probably shouldn't say on your podcast, but um, it begins with B. But these things really, this is a real risk. So there's serious concern about the fact that ultimately, without guardrails, they will just make things up. And It's like talking to your very smart friend who can't cope with being wrong. If you talk to them about a particular subject that they know nothing about, they'll just make up stuff to win the argument. It's a bit the same with GPT. It it really has that same feeling even sometimes when it gives you answers that really don't make much sense. So yeah, it's a risk. When
0: we look at the hallucinations or whatever other word we might choose, when we look at that in a bit more detail, How would we know if for a project that we're wanting to do, if we want to bring it into our business for learning, for training, for upskilling and reskilling, how could we get a gut feeling for the idea whether this might work for the project that we're envisaging without having to purchase a one-year subscription to a very expensive solution? How are these first steps then going to work for us?
1: As you can probably imagine, this is very close to my thoughts, pretty much 24% at the moment. So how do we leverage these things without the risk of teaching people something which just isn't true? There are lots of different tricks and things. I don't want to sound too much like um, a Cassandra about this sort of thing, but ultimately the risk is always going to be there. So ultimately there is always this problem that when you train a machine learning model, you're collecting, scraping huge amounts of text from the internet. You really don't know what's in it, and you can't quantify what's in it. It's just too big. So there are always these problems of things happening at the tails of the distribution that you just can't touch and you just can't see. They, they are risks that will always be there. So it's about reducing that risk from likely to improbable. So the way that seems to work quite well is something which is called retrieval augmented generation. So the idea of doing a classical search where you really understand how you're searching for things, so think of a Google search, for example, and then using these large language models to summarize what you get out of that. That seems to be a much safer way of doing things because you're really not asking the model to generate freeform text, you're asking it to do summarization. And suddenly when you're summarizing things, you can use clever things in the prompt to tell it, well. Just don't go outside of what I'm giving you to summarize and we'll be okay. So there are definitely ways of um, anchoring to a particular thing. I also quite like the idea of doing work with Socratic dialogue and getting characters or machine learning characters at least to, to discuss particular subjects. So you can set them off on a particular discussion and produce something which is a bit more grounded than the abstract nonsense that Galactica came up with.
0: When we look at this
1: data, this knowledge base that we
0: might be working with, you're saying there's still quite a role for us humans to say, let's not just use it as it is, let's give it the pieces that we've sort of
1: signed off and then work with it. Am I getting you right then? Yes, I think this is much safer. So there are, I mean, various education startups have gone all in on generative models and large language models in particular. And we've all seen as well, the results of not moving with the times, the story about Chegg and their collapsing stock price as a result of saying, we're not ready for this. So I think everyone is concerned that this could be the the new wave that sweeps away a lot of old business models. But I think there's still a place for human verification. and I'm very skeptical that we're going to get away from a a place where humans have to verify the information that goes into education courses that use large language models. It's a dangerous proposition to start allowing people to to learn from these things. There's also another risk beyond that even, which is things become self-reinforcing on the internet already. So you can imagine this risk of something takes off. We've all seen this, the fake things on Snopes.com that take off in some subculture of the internet and go viral. There's another level of risk on top of that if you start allowing people to learn from LLMs because course, they can generate stuff, which is made up. This thing can then pass into their training data set through people talking about it on the internet. And then that reinforces what they were already making up. So you can imagine this dialogue between human and machine that develops ideas that never really should have taken off in the first place. So I think we're safe as educators for the time being.
0: When we look at examples like Duolingo or the Khan Academy, who we come across as great examples for this being used, is it then safe to say that for these things, the training on the internet, the scraping has provided enough? Or would these organizations have also put their own data in, in addition? And if I want to utilize this in a specific area, how would I be able to judge whether I'm looking at a topic where I can trust it a bit more, or,
1: or whether I'm, I need to put my own in? This is a really important question, I think. I would say there are several layers to the way in which these things are trained. So the first step is you scrape internet scale level of data about everything. So, and we're really talking internet scale as well. So it's scary when you see the estimates that people have made about how much data these are trained on, but it's, we're talking a significant fraction of the textual data that humanity produced since we started writing. So it's really, it's a lot. And a lot of it scarily has been generated in the last 20 years on the internet as well. So we're talking about somewhat biased samples already from a historical point of view, because it's relatively recent, but also just, just a lot. The next step that lots of companies do, and this has been the real breakthrough actually, that turned out to be important for LLMs, is this alignment step that we do to human understanding. So there's this next step where you do a trick called reinforcement learning from human feedback, where you get the machine learning model to generate outputs, and you ask real, live, smart human beings to say which output they prefer. And this has been the way that a lot of companies have got rid of some of the more toxic things that the base models come out with, but it's also a really good way of aligning to a particular use case. Now, that said, there is still this problem of and the tails of distributions, and you can't do reinforcement learning from human feedback for everything. So you can't produce a perfect teacher from a reinforcement learning approach alone. You also have to have the, the underlying data and the underlying educational expertise as well. So there are, there are lots of steps going on here. Honestly, I would say most companies out there today who are using large language models are really using the fact that they're very good at paraphrasing or rephrasing content. This is the place where they, they have a natural fit of education is explain it like I'm five kind of behavior where they can take something which might be quite complicated and give it different levels of complexity for different learners. I think that's something which is relatively safe and and relatively sensible as a use case. But in general, there are some companies out there who are clearly just trying to use them for everything. And that, that really frightens me.
0: There's really still going to be that interplay between humans and the AI, and one big organization has coined this the co-pilot to work in tandem to produce the, the best results. That's how you're seeing the, the near future, at least, as well, then?
1: Absolutely. So more than that, this has been a well-known way of doing things with machine intelligence three decades. When Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue back in 1997, he obviously was devastated by the fact that he'd been beaten by a machine and felt like he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. But then he turned around maybe a year later and said, you know what, this is a great way to play chess. So machine engines have a very specific skill set, which is they don't make blunders, they go into very specific patterns of play, which are somewhat boring to watch, to be honest, but they're very, very predictable and very dependable. Human beings are wild, emotional beings who are easily tricked into playing badly by openings from their opponents. Why not mix the two? Why not create what he called centaur chess, which is you use simultaneously a chess engine and a human being. So you can play essentially the game and the other human being at the same time by mixing the, the best of the two. I think, I mean, this is the right paradigm for machine learning. It's not, it's not going to replace us. It's just going to augment us.
0: That's fascinating, yes. And a really good example with the weight of the world on your shoulders when you're the first to be beaten by a machine. And did
1: many see that coming? I don't know. Probably not. It didn't feel like it at the time. I remember seeing the news stories and it seemed like a shock. And then the same thing with Lee Sedol and um, AlphaGo, and the DeepMind equivalent. We're we're very hubristic as a species, so we always think that somehow, well, there's a reason why the next game computers won't get good at it. So the the argument was always, oh, the state space of Go is enormous, you know, it's bigger than there are oh, numbers of atoms in the known universe. There's no way that a machine will be good at that. Yes, but why would a human being be good at that either? So it turned out that yes, it's if you have the right approach, it doesn't really matter. And I think this is the pattern we're going to see more and more is. Machines will, will beat us, in inverted commas, at a wider and wider variety of things, but being able to synthesize those different tasks and also being able to do them in a, a human-appropriate way, that's what will enhance machine learning far more. Like, sort of comes back to what we were saying about what made ChatGPT such a breakout hit, was the fact that it wasn't the underlying model of the way that it works, it's just the fact that humans can interact with it in a way that feels human. And we say please and thank you. So yeah.
0: And that I guess is also one of those things regarding the changing definition of AI, that very quickly we decide, no, 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 this is algorithms, this is something we've programmed. The, the the next stage we would be able to call AI. But what we did five years ago is definitely not AI. So the benchmark keeps changing. We don't have a proper definition. So you still have some people out there who say, well, let's call it machine learning, and there's a huge debate around that. But I think that, that is encompassed in the, in the story you were telling there about how AlphaGo again took it to the next level. And right now, I mean, I wouldn't profess to have seen that coming at this speed. Right now, we've already got two taxi companies in San Francisco operating without a driver. And of course, people are sharing lots of funny images where the system might get stuck and get maybe a little bit hung up on those. There are many, many people who have fantastic, smooth, easy rides through the city without a driver. And no, I would not have, I would not have seen
1: that coming. No, I completely agree. And it's interesting. So you'll, you'll notice that I often say machine learning where other people say AI. The reason why I avoid AI as a term in general is because honestly, I couldn't tell you what I think intelligence is. So I've, I've worked in this field for six years. I have no idea what really constitutes intelligence. I couldn't define it for you. So I stick with learning, which I feel I sort of understand better, but I suspect if I dug under the covers a little more, I'd realize that it's just the same. So, but to answer your your anecdote about taxis, yeah, completely. The amazing, the pace of development and it's good to see as well. So in the automotive world, it's very sad. We lose thousands of people every year to automotive accidents. The, every death is a tragedy. The idea that, that these robotic taxis and robotic cars initially were somehow to be stopped because one human being died, I think that's a terrible benchmark. We should probably just look within ourselves a bit and go, well, actually, if these things can do better than we can and they save lives, that's good enough. And as long as we can be sure that that's true and there's measurement to back it up, and I can think of certain instances where I'm not convinced that that's true, then yeah, then we should go ahead. This is the pace of development. Yeah. And if we bring it a little bit back
0: more to our experience of the large language model and, and interacting with it in the here and now and trying to get the most out of it, because we, we can't go in there as normal human beings and try to improve the system, we leave that to the experts. When it comes to prompting, There are certain stories about do this and you get a slightly better result. Do that and get a better result. Prompt engineers have been touted as the new job role to have. When it comes to these prompting ideas, is there anything we can learn from this more generally about how
1: interactions might work better or not as well? The thing that always helps me is to think about what you would expect to be well represented at internet scale. So disclosure, I regularly say to my team, I think I've become a prompt engineer. And they laugh at me, but it's sort of true. So you want to try and pick tasks that are representative of something that you want to do. You can really think of it as trying to find your way to a particular bit of the internet through your prompting. There's a lovely example from last weekend. I was asking GPT-4 to critique startup ideas. So my other half is also a frustrated wannabe technologist. So she was coming up with wild ideas that we couldn't find representations of out there in the world. So I thought it would be interesting to see what GPT thinks about these. And if you say to it, well, critique my startup idea, here's the outline, here's the founding team, what do you think the chances of success are? Even for completely absurd ideas, I think one was a drone delivery company to get you sneakers in less than an hour. Obviously a terrible use case, but GPT's too polite in general, in the broad brush, to say... This is a terrible idea. and You're just wasting VC's money. What are you thinking? So instead, it just says, well, you know, there are these things that you might want to work on, but I think you have a 30% chance of success. Are you kidding me? Like The baseline level is 10% anyway. So at least regress to the mean for me. But then if you start to ask it to do things in a more specific way, and people have found this in general. For, for my case of critiquing startup ideas, if I asked it to come up with a way of Ranking startups, so give this thing a score out of 100 the way a VC would, give points for total addressable market, give points for founding team, for uh, market penetration, all of these things, suddenly it becomes completely brutal. It's like talking to Paul Graham. And so this thing will just come up with, you no, know, no, this is a terrible idea, and I would rate your startup zero on this. Okay, so all you have to do really is find a way to focus on that particular bit of the training set. And actually this is something that you and I have discussed before. It sort of feels a bit like the Carnival and Tumsky system one, system two thing. So if you give GPT a really high level prompt, it will just give you a knee-jerk reaction. It's as if it's not really engaging the deep thought part of what it can do. It just and I'm anthropomorphic again because of course I am. Um, so it just goes for the knee jerk response of yeah I think this is kind of okay I just leave me alone whereas if you give it some deeper prompts to really engage the probably the deeper layers of the model then suddenly you get access to this other bit of the data set that you wouldn't have seen in broad brush and it feels like it's now doing the deep thought system 2 work to give you an answer to your thing so would that then explain why I've seen a lot in the
0: last 4 weeks maybe on LinkedIn That people are saying they get much better responses when they ask for a step-by-step explanation slash process. And is it is it in those moments that there's prodding deeper and therefore getting better
1: responses? And how can we explain that a little bit? I think you're right. I think it really is that case of trying to essentially make the model think. So one of the other things that I say to people all the time is deep learning is kind of dumb and kind of lazy. So if you give it an easy task to do. It will do the easiest thing it possibly can to fulfill the task. So there were examples of, in the early days of DeepMind, they trained machine learning models to play computer games. The computer games had glitches in them, they had coding bugs. So there was one game which was, I think, was driving a speedboat around a maze. And the thing just found that if you went around a particular pixel in the maze, you would automatically be given you know, 100,000 points for nothing. So the speedboat would just go straight over to this one pixel and just go round and round and round forever to, to pick up the maximum points. And you think, well, you kind of missed the point of the game there really, but okay. And it's the same with GPT. Ultimately, what you're really looking for is some sections of the internet where people have thought carefully about what they need to do. And they've more or less done that Socratic dialogue with themselves in one form or another. Or internet forums, places where people discuss deep ideas together. And then you can see that, well, if you train on that kind of environment, and if you can get into that part of the training set of these models, then you get much more reasoned, thoughtful responses to what you're looking for.
0: So a more precise question asking for more detail accesses a deeper part, so to speak, of the knowledge engine and therefore produces better results. I guess if it then looks at deeper parts of the knowledge engine, then it will be using sources that have been written in more detail as well.
1: That's certainly my intuition. One of the big problems with these models in general is that they're not very explainable. So it's easy to forget even the GPT has never seen a word. All of this is done with vectors and matrices that we don't see. It's very difficult to explain them, but I think a good rationalization is to say the transformer layers that build these things up are like memorization units. There are lovely old models going back, maybe half a century, to describe how our brains work. Ideas of associated memories that exist in our brains where you train a group of neurons to reproduce a particular pattern. This is kind of how we feel like we remember photographs. If you see a scene that you feel like you've seen before, then it triggers the memory of the previous thing that you saw. And it might be slightly different, but there's some association there. And it's a bit the same with these these transformer layers that exist in GPT. They memorize patterns and then they try and reproduce those patterns. They encode information in a very strange associative way, but they're still encoding existing information. Where they lack what we can do is they can't then take action to explore those situations more because they're trained on static text, they never really get the ability to move their head around and see oh does that does that bit of the building poke out where i think it does they're just given the static case and then yeah they try and reproduce that whenever they can so it's a really fascinating field then the attention maps these things are beautiful but impossible to understand for me at least a lot of people that i speak to and i guess
0: across sectors are asking The, for them, possibly most important question, when will we get a handle on this hallucination? When will we be able to put some logics into the system, which currently it sometimes looks like it has, but then we can test and see ourselves that, no, there's no logic there. Clearly, it is just maybe predictive text on steroids. that is the question that everyone is thinking about. This has been such a huge step forward. Now I'm thinking about utilizing this for learning. I'm thinking about utilizing this in my business, for client interaction, for lots of different things maybe. W- when am I expecting that, the, the next big company says, and now we've added a logics piece. What are your views on that? What can you share with us
1: there? I think this is a fascinating, almost misinterpretation of how these things work by most people. So. It's a bit of a, the way to look at it is more of a cops and robbers problem. Ultimately, in trying to remove hallucinations, you're really finding the edge cases where they turn up and then removing them by using this reinforcement learning trick. So the reason why these GPT models have got better in the last few years, I would say is more to do with the volume of reinforcement learning training they've been doing rather than actually that the models are radically better. They tend to be scarily, despite the amount of text they're trained on, they tend to be data hungry. So they actually need more than we're able to provide them with now, which is an utterly terrifying idea in its own right. But yes, the idea that these things will be stamped out completely, I don't see that happening. There are always going to be little edges in these transformer networks which will give you unexpectedly unpleasant responses or unexpectedly weird responses that you can't deal with. So it's really, it's something that you have to view as a statistical problem. The same as deaths from self-driving cars. It's one of those things where it will get better over time, but it will never be fixed. The truth is probably it's the same with educators too. So you have uh, teachers out there in schools who will occasionally get things wrong. You have guys who will do the odd bad sales call. So it's a question of, is it better than what we have now, rather than is it perfect? The fact that all the human-produced text
0: that we now have available to us digitally seems to not quite be enough to do a bit of a better job. That's quite a terrifying
1: thought process, no? Yes, isn't it? It's insane as well because it's so different from the way that we learn. So when we're kids, we see maybe a few thousand words and we can understand grammar, we can understand how things fit together. The difference, I think, is something which goes back to how we train these models. So the idea of doing next word prediction as being the holy grail of text creation, it, it's clearly not how we learn. We learn by conversing with one another and understanding ideas from speaking to one another. And the, the missing part of so much of machine learning right now is that ability to take action as part of the learning process. A bit like I was saying with you know, when we see something new that we're not quite sure what it is, we can move our heads and look for a slightly different perspective on it. Whereas machine learning models, they get what they get. We we train them using backpropagation to just reproduce what they see and nothing more. And it feels like if you really want to go after something which learns the way, we am not going to say human beings, but at least learning creatures learn, then we're currently trying to get to the moon by building a taller ladder and we're running out of text for, for training these text models. We're running out of images and there are all sorts of issues with copyright around these things too for training image models. So it feels like it's, it's an interesting time in machine learning research because we're going to have to start doing things smarter rather than harder. And do you feel that, that there is
0: something in the near future? Do we have a sense of A potential timescale for the for the next big step that will make people feel like they felt last october what are your spontaneous thoughts on that what does your crystal ball right now
1: say i love these sorts of questions because the only way to get better at forecasting and spirit of full disclosure i'm terrible at forecasting only way to get better is to practice i would say it's not going to be in the next year that we start moving towards systems that learn in a more biological way, I would say. so I, this is a longer term prospect. And there are a number of reasons for that. The cynic in me says one of the big ones is a lot of machine learning research is powered by extremely big companies that have very large data centers that they would like to be as utilized as possible. So our current very inefficient way of doing machine learning suits them just fine because they can sell. GPU clusters to all to train their machine learning models, whereas these clusters take 8,000 watts of power, whereas the human brain is running on maximum 20 watts, there's not much enthusiasm to switch over to something that only takes 20 watts of power compared to 8,000. So that's one thing. But also, I think we really need to come up with basic definitions of things like intelligence and problem solving, which don't really exist yet. So... It's, it's a longer term, much more fascinating in my view, research. Fantastic. And I love how you, for the
0: second time, they get back to the definition for intelligence, because that in itself is of course, almost an infinite question, if I may be so bold to state it like that, because we're not just looking at doing something that a human might do, being able to do some maths or passing the bar exam or being able to code. We then have to zoom out and say, what about swarm intelligence? What about ants or a beehive? That wh- what kind of intelligence is that? So that definition is going to be quite the question. You also mentioned the ethics side and you, you briefly touched upon image creation. Well, where do you see us being with regard to ethics and copyright there at the moment? And have we got some good examples we could share?
1: So this is the other interesting development right now. And this is not really in terms of machine learning research, but more where we are as a research community. A bunch of different companies have scraped internet data and used it for training models. It's now getting to the point where a lot of content creators are upset about the fact that their content is being used to train models that could put them out of business. So there's a lovely example. It was one of the image generation companies who trained models using, in all likelihood, Getty Images images. And then when you asked their particular model to create a picture of a footballer kicking a ball near to the goal, this thing would create a perfect picture of this, including a blurred version of the Getty Images logo, which is not really a great look if you're using copyrighted material to train your models. You might want to look out for that kind of thing. Similarly, OpenAI apparently are possibly at risk of a lawsuit from the New York Times for using articles written by the New York Times to train their models. And that really could be the end of their existing models. They might actually have to destroy everything that they've created and start again if this, this lawsuit goes through. It's a really interesting time. And it's also, it comes back to that fundamental question of what are you trying to do? These models are credited as being enormously creative and they do appear so, but there are interesting things that you notice about them. So GPT-4 generated text is still not quite human. There are strange things that happen where you realize that it really picks words that are high up in the distribution. And you, you and I talk and we use strange words and we, we kind of go off piece sometimes. GPT-4 doesn't do that. It just, it sticks to. What is probable? What likely in this context? So there's still a question as to whether these things are truly creative or if they're just repeating what they've seen before. Interesting thoughts there. And
0: also interesting thoughts for those people who are looking to deploy these systems, obviously, because purchasing a system like this right now and going forward, there are still some questions out there with some lawsuits that are happening as we speak. So there's going to be movement there. I often feel that when we, as humans, approach these questions, we too quickly end up going for the big picture. We immediately think, how can this solve all the problems we've ever had? And in in different sectors, whether it's sales or marketing or L&D, we tend to very quickly say, oh, this tool is so fantastic. This tool isn't going to help us to drill a hole better. This tool is just going to build the whole house for us. And I think we jump to conclusions there very quickly. And... I always think choosing good use cases that are around a very specific KPI, whether it's in learning or whether it's in other departments, is something that you can do on a smaller scale. You can learn from it, you can celebrate the successes, you can see what went well and where things maybe fell down, and then you can go for the next iteration rather than imagining how absolutely everything will just be revolutionized. And in the end, that revolution will be the succession of many of those small steps and I think maybe that's what we need to do is take a step back and say what's the next viable application what is a project that could actually reap some really good rewards here then try to jump to the moon using the ladder
1: very passionate about this actually as a means of doing everything so this is I think a very important way of approaching not just building products but really also building startups, doing innovation, creating ourselves and recreating ourselves. We're the first generation that we will not have a single career. Our parents have the luxury, and I'm sure you've had the same conversations that I've had with my parents, which is you get asked, why, why don't you go off and find a nice stable job? You know, I worked in the same company for 35 years and I've got a nice pension and everything's very stable for me. But we're We have this infinite possibility ahead of us where what we choose to do now may very well not exist in 10 years' time. And that rewards you for being able to move. But the trick, as you rightly pointed out, is not to try and leap from one thing to another. Just find a path where you can put one foot in front of the other and and keep moving in that direction. It's so important. I think iteration is key to everything. And this is where I really liked the, the Silicon Valley mindset, which is, try something, fail, learn a lesson, do it a bit better the next time. And eventually one day you'll get to the point where you can do it. Well, I have a funny story along these lines from bike racing, actually. So I had a friend when I was racing mountain bikes, who was a lovely kid who was, I think 17 or 18 years old, unbelievably physically strong, but his attitude to racing mountain bikes was, I'll just go as fast as I can for as long as I can, he would Set off like he had a pack of greyhounds chasing him every race. And every race, the first year of his cycling career, he would crash into a tree on the first lap, or he'd wipe out on a corner, or he'd just run out of energy. And He never made it to the end of the race. He would always be wiping out here, there, and everywhere. And then gradually, iteratively, he got a little bit further into the race, and a little bit further into the race, until one day, it wasn't a problem anymore. And he was finishing races at the speed he was starting them at. Okay, that takes determination, but it does get results eventually. That's a wonderful story. One quick last question for you. What is it that you're working on right now that is really exciting you? I'm sort of hinting towards this a little bit in what I'm saying. I think there are better ways of doing machine learning than what we're doing now. I can't give away too much, but I will give away a little teaser of what I think is important for L&D and machine learning in the future. So there's a lovely idea from a bunch of different neuroscientists that if you start doing things where you allow machine powered agents to start taking actions, then in some sense, you allow them to build a map of their own world. So you can imagine if you start building machine powered agents, which can learn how to teach, you also build a map of how the human brain works in the area of learning the things that they're teaching. So there's a there's a really nice uh, neuroscience-inspired idea about how you might really create something which simultaneously is quite good at teaching, but also explains a few mysteries that we have about how humans learn. Fabulously exciting topic. Wonderful note to end on. Look, it's been
0: really great having you. I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. We can find you on the social media networks and we We'll be sharing your links there as well. And again, Chris, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on the episode. Absolutely, my pleasure too. Thank you so much, Mark.